What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. I'm joined, as ever, by the boy, Nathan Cush. What's up, Nath? All right. You okay, son? Yeah, man. How's it going? Yeah, well, very excited to be bringing you guys this new episode, which is part two of our mini-series, Exploring the Global System in the Wake of the NATO Withdrawal from Afghanistan. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Professor Michael Hart. Michael is a Marxist political philosopher who is professor at Duke University in North Carolina. He's the author of a number of very famous works on the global capitalist system, particularly the book Empire, which was co-written with Antonio Negri and published in 2000. The book gained critical acclaim across the world and was a cornerstone of debate on empire and imperialism on the left for years, and indeed still is. He later published a sequel to the book, which was called Multitude, followed by another sequel called Commonwealth. Michael is a frequent writer and commentator on the world's capitalist system and has recently written reflective follow-ups to Empire in New Left Review, amongst other places. He's also an activist, and in 2018, as part of a pro-migrant collective, he helped launch a migrant rescue ship, the Mari Jonio, which launched rescue operations off Libya from Italy. So someone who puts his money where his mouth is, and as you'll see in this episode, is just an all-round very nice guy. He was the okay. uh, captain of that ship as well, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and just yeah, just an all-round an all-round legend, a very, a very nice, humble man, considering I guess the, the impact he's had on sort of on scholarship. So um, hope you guys enjoy the show. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Really sort of uh, honoured to have you here. What were your first thoughts on seeing the fall of Kabul? Did you think I'm going to have to write a new book or update Empire or <laughs> what did you think seeing it happen? You know, one of the things I think was remarkable, it wasn't really a surprise to anybody. You know, it's not like it was a, uh, and, and even, you know, even the chaotic uh, manner in which the US government had to withdraw it, the, any outrage over it or concern or anything didn't last very long which is sort of surprising. You know, it was a, it was, it passed all very quickly. You know, for me, of course, I found it interesting to think back over how to map the trajectory of U.S. global hegemony. I mean, in some ways, the way I see the withdrawal from Afghanistan is a kind of confirmation of something that I think was already clear quite a bit earlier. You know, in some ways, also, I, I, I was interested in the parallel between the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam and the U.S. withdrawal from Kabul. You know, everyone was talking about the common images of the helicopter on the on the roof of the of the embassy. It's also parallel in other ways. You know, the in some ways the U.S. imperialist adventure in Vietnam was attempting to take over for the failed French imperialist control of Indochina, and with the idea that. The European powers have um, exhausted their abilities, and now the U.S. is the, with its 20th century, is the one to take over. In some ways, the same way with Afghanistan, that the that the Soviet failure in Afghanistan, the U.S. entry with the kind of confidence, you know, it reminded me then of the uh, Bush senior president when he announced in 1990-ish there was a new world order, and the new world order there there meant that there's only one remaining superpower. You know, and so in some ways, the Vietnam was the the kind of U.S. confidence or or hubris. You know, that the French were now declining, and the U.S. can take over in the same way the hubris of you know the Soviets couldn't master imperialist control of Afghanistan, but now the U.S. can. So it's a. I mean, I, I guess in that sense, all I'm saying is a, is a kind of um, final confirmation. But the dating of it seems important to me. I mean, the 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 way I see it is that. The U.S. 
failure in Vietnam, you know, it's both a military failure, but also a, an economic and political failure, whether one dates that at 68, say with the Tet Offensive or 75 with withdrawal, that has been long realized, recognized. I mean, uh, Tony and I in Empire, of course, say that, but also thinking of Giovanni Arrighi in the long 20th century, and he repeats this in the Adam Smith and Beijing book, that 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 for him, too, the Vietnam War was a was a turning point, a, a signal event, I think he calls it. So it's not the U.S. global hegemony was over, but for him, the U.S. entered its autumnal phase. It is a beautiful expression of the yeah. of the of the decline of U.S. hegemony. So, I mean, all of this, all of this is a way of understanding, you know, for me or, you know, for me and Tony from writing about empire you know 20 years ago to since then is that the us's ability to be a global hegemon or from a slightly different angle or different vocabulary us imperialist abilities you know which imperialist abilities meaning to be able to uh, unilaterally exert its influence over over other countries to successfully do that because I mean, I, I do think it's important. Maybe I'm making a little parenthesis here. I do think it's important to recognize, you know, with the 2003 or, or you know, with with uh, the invasion of of first Afghanistan and then Iraq and the attempted occupations of them, you might say, or people were sort of thinking at the time, you know, well, this proves that the U.S. is an imperialist power, and yeah. because they could militarily overthrow whoever. Like they could destroy whatever. That's, that was a small part of what was required. What was required and what they and what they claimed at the time, you know, was that they could create a new order yeah. there. That that's what and you know that was the shocking thing actually about Afghanistan is that in 20 years they did absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know that that's with the so there was it, it's shocking how little there was of 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 police force of government of um. And so I guess I guess for me, you know, so that that all goes into maybe it's it's a long way of saying that it seems to me a confirmation of the end of the U.S.'s abilities in these in these regards, whether one wants to say, like I say, as global hegemon or or imperialist power or another way of saying it is is really center of gravity of global capital. Maybe this is also important. So that's what it I mean, that's what it meant to me. I, I, I guess, you know, the next question, of course, but maybe we should delay with this is if. What does it mean to say, or what's the consequences of saying or recognizing that the U.S. is no longer in this position? Yeah. Right? But we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I think. But I, I guess just to now I'm saying an obvious thing, but it's I think it's important for, to start from this thing is that 20 years ago it was a controversial statement, you know, to say that the U.S. <laughs> is no way no longer able to serve this role or act this way. With the fall of Afghanistan, nobody is questioning that. Like that is taken for granted and an obvious fact. When you read an empire, you know, one of the interesting claims, which, as you said, has been borne out, is that, you know, and we will get into this, but there's a distinction, clear distinction between imperialism and then your concept of empire. But you, know, you argue very simply that imperialism is, is weaker than empire. And you use the example of looking at the U.S., his effort in Afghanistan and Iraq, and you compare it with, let's say, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, which held, or French Empire, which held huge amounts of overseas territories uh, very peacefully. Well, not peacefully, but you know, obviously through well, a mixture of... Stable, in a stable way. Yeah, stability, stable. Way. For hundreds of years, obviously using a mixture of coercion and, and rule through sort of, you know, consent and so on. But that is, I thought, was an interesting 
analogy you know to it's just quite a simple way of of making that distinction so we'll go on to what empire you know the the, the thesis of the book empire because you know it is a marxist book but your conception of empire departed quite significantly from sort of traditional marxist readings of imperialism you know from like hobson to lenin to kowski to wallerstein and even from modern ones like david harvey and so on um very briefly can you just sub up the argument like what is empire and how it departs from you know like let's say like lenin's theory of imperialism well in some ways you know departs from another way of seeing it is we historicize them you know Mm -hmm. because what was true about the highest stage of capitalism in 1916 when he's writing when lenin's writing that pamphlet it doesn't mean that it's true today i mean that's partly what we're and it, it, so in that way, I mean, I would put us more in line with, you know, even if we have some differences with the Giovanni Arrighi and the Brodel uh, yeah. school in different ways, or in Wallerstein in this way, too, I would say, in rec- trying to recognize historical periods and the way that capitalist rule shifts among them. I mean, so it, it essentially what at least one of the aspects we're trying to get at when we're talking, I, I don't know, maybe somewhat. It's not always a, a handy terminological shift from imperialism <laughs> to empire. You know, it can create all kinds of confusion. But what we're trying to get at, at least one aspect of it, is that in the face of imperialism, a dominant nation state is able to, through the state, control foreign territory. And when we're not saying that in the current phase or the phase that's, that's in, that we're entering now, we're not saying that nation states are no longer important. We're just saying that they fit within a larger frame. Like that we have to understand them within a larger frame. Another way of coming at the same question is that in a previous phase, one had to understand the relationship between the nation state and the national capital. And that relationship was the primary one. And then an international frame was among those different nation states and among the different national capitals. In the current phase, it seems to us that the, the center of priority has shifted from national capital to global capital. And that we have to, it, it's a difficult proposition. You know, like what is no global capital in what way is it's framed now? But that if if one understands a shift from national capital to global capital as as the frame of, um, well, frame of reference, but also the most important- um, Like the driver of the imperialism. Yeah, the most effective driver, exactly. That, you know, this is our hypothesis that there has to be a new form of governance and control that is adequate global capital. I mean, the the understanding being that U.S. even if it's the most dominant nation state cannot control global capital. You know that it's there. There are many ways in which it is. And so what what we're understanding as empire is like you can even just say a black box. You know, like there was something national uh, the nation state that was able to be adequate to guaranteeing the collective and long term interests of of national capital, what is it that can guarantee the collective and long-term interests of global capital? Yeah, it's almost a challenge. Something needs to be there, and then what that is. I mean, we do then have have a theory about what it is, but maybe I should go into that later as we get as we get along. We could we could talk about it now. I was gonna I was gonna give like my <laughs> my attempt to explain <laughs> about down um, just to sort of test myself. But you know, the traditional reading of imperialism and Marxism it involves powerful nation states. It's driven by profits, as you said, it's driven by the desires of national capital, colonial expansion to generate more profits. Whereas in empire you've almost got this phenomenon or this thing called empire, which sort of blankets the whole world. So empire is no longer anchored in like specific capitalist nation states, but is instead like a free floating phenomenon 
which kind of like spreads across borders, which permeates everyday life and human thought itself. And there's like a, a focus on like imminence in it, you know, like almost empire is like a living thing, which is kind of like I thought if you've read like Marcuse or even like Mark Fisher a bit more lately, we were there before Fisher in, in a way, sort of talking about how it sort of penetrates our daily life and thoughts. And one of the ways you explain that is using the concept of biopower through Foucault. And maybe it's worth just getting straight into Yeah, before the biopower stuff, because I think that's the next phase of it or something. I think it'd be helpful first just to think about, you know, in some ways we've shifted from external conflicts to Mm -hmm. internal conflicts within the global system. So when Luxembourg and Lenin are talking about or thinking about World War One as inter-imperialist competition and the, you know, both the scramble for Africa and then the limited space in which imperialist powers are conflicting, we started, and they see that as part of the crisis, rightly, yeah. of early 20th century international competition. We are posing those same conflicts within a system. So empire is not, you know, one of the the difficult things once we pose that term is that that, uh, and and we say things that that lead in this direction too, but it's not as if empire is some homogeneous, uniform, smooth something or other. Instead, it's composed of conflicts. They are internal to it. So, you know, for instance, we're very attached to this notion of a mixed constitution. It was helpful for us to be able to explain that within a global system, you know, to say it's a global system doesn't mean it's all the same thing. It's it's even divided in different levels of struggle. Yeah, I, let me just say that for a minute because, I mean, it helped with us. You know, we had a little bit of a, a running I don't know if you call it a running joke between us, because they're often those in when Tony and I are writing, but something about the Roman Empire, you know, so this was a description, a classic description of the Roman Empire, so we try to appropriate it. The idea being that there were three levels of, of uh, or this is a kind of analytical approach, you know, think of global order in terms of three levels, in which there is a top level, you know, they're geometrically defined, that's one of the nice things about this. There is a top level of the rule of the one, you know, in some ways, the U.S., militarily, culturally, mm-hmm. in other ways, acts as if it were monarchical in the global scene. You know, there, and, there, and there's no denying that. I mean, and that shifts sometimes. But then there's a second level, aristocratic level, meaning the rule of the few, in which the dominant corporations, the dominant nation states jockey for position, you know, conflict with each other and, you know, collaborate, but conflict. It's a, it's a, it is definitely a scene of and this is the kind of things that might be worth talking about over the last 20 years. You know, what is the ways in which, you know, 20 years ago, it seemed like the BRICS were yeah. rising or that, you know, 30 years ago, it seemed like Japan was on the ascent. Right? And now it's trying, you know, so these are all uh, competitions within within this frame. And then a third level, you know, you'd say the rule of the many in which we locate, you know, well, certainly NGOs, if we want to talk about them, but also media, a lot of different things that, that and that. There's a kind of there's competition and and collaboration among, among all these levels, but also between the levels, you know, and that has anyway, that's that's just giving an idea that for us, it was a way of thinking that this is we're not talking about some homogeneous or even unified mm. structure. And really, we're not even answering the question of, you know, what is global power today? We're rather trying to. Uh, even for ourselves, offer a um, framework or a lens through which one could think about these problems. And that's what this mixed constitution was doing for us. 
I, I don't really think it's that different from Lenin and Luxembourg. I mean, they, it, it, except in the sense that there's been an evolution, an evolution of capitalism, best way of thinking about it, I think, that it's no longer, we should no longer think of national capitals as separate and external to one another, yeah. even if we ever did. I mean, the, so in classic terms, if you want, you know, that Marx was always preoccupied with the uh, construction of the world market. And in some ways, one of the shifts we've seen in the 20th century is the increasing interconnection and and internal connections posed by the world market. Uh, I don't think, as you said, it's not much is as a significant a departure from like traditional Marxism either. You know, I think I think it complements. I think, like as you said, the second layer. Without wanting to go into too much detail, I think the second the second layer in in the analogy you just used sort of is compliment someone like Poulantzas or Robert Cox, you know, talking about this transnational capitalist class, that there's this like sort of hegemonic ideology Absolutely. of capitalism, that all these, you know, that like it doesn't yeah. matter if a, a manager or a boss or CEO in Wales or, uh, you know, Germany or America or even in like the, the third world or the BRICS or whatever, you know, you are, you, you're nonetheless united by a sort of desire for this particular system to, to remain in place. You do acknowledge that there is conflict within the system. There's always a series of like mini crises and mini wars. I thought it might be interesting for the listeners to talk about, you know, when you talk about conflict and empire, it's about policing. It's about policing the globe. The police action is the is the metaphor, you know, and it's supported by like moral appeals. And it, even if, let's say, people didn't agree with or, you know, the fact the US and the UK, whatever, went into Iraq unilaterally, the international community then was supportive of going into Afghanistan. And it's because there is this, you know, there is a consensus across the European Union and across America about, you know, police in the world. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you, all the wars are conceived as civil wars. So the police force mm-hmm. will intervene to mediate between these sort of like naughty, naughty parties uh, on behalf of like the just. No, that's good. And, and you know, one of the things you're making me think is that Tony and I do, and, and especially in Empire, have a rely a lot on topographical metaphors of inside and outside, you know, and that's partly what's at stake here with the question about the military and the police. I mean, the, the, just at, at, at base, it's understood that a police force since operates to control domestic internal to a nation questions and the military is what, what fights against other nations. Um, and so that, you know, the police is internal to this, to the sovereign sphere and the army is external to it. And so if there is no outside, you know, if it's if it's not if these aren't external, but rather internal questions, then it, then it's a police matter. They, you know, that's sort of how we started with this. And, you know, it might be hard to remember, but when we're writing this book with Clinton Blair yeah. in power, you know, the Kosovo bombings in Kosovo was partly one of the things that was clear on our mind and, and and just as you said you know this sort of moral human rights reasoning for a war that's not presented as attacking a sovereign nation it's rather a war that was to it's like intervention yeah, exactly. isn't it yeah yeah the intervention the intervention was to police i mean the question of sovereignty was set aside you know so you know a military endeavor is about between sovereign powers uh, civil wars instead are within a sovereign territory so, I mean, maybe in certain sense, we're not saying that much with this, but we think that there's been a shift of the way we think about military conflict uh, and the way, well, actually not the way we think about it, the way they think about it, you know, yeah. the way, the way it's, uh, 
it's posed. And, and so I would say Iraq and Afghanistan were not that dissimilar. I mean, it's not like it was almost internal to a much larger system that these problems had to be dealt with. You know, that was the idea, which it also is not just the the idea in Iraq and Afghanistan. You, I don't know if you or the listeners would remember, and many, of course, weren't you know around to remember at the time. But their claims were that they could remake the political atmosphere, you know, that they could create democracy and they could create the democracy that they know, you know, that they could. And yeah, as a, like I say, I, I think I would maybe it seems obvious to everyone, you know, this notion of this kind of internal rather than external question. You know, there's one thing I want to circle back to, which yeah. I know this is sort of out of order, but, you know, with the the, the failure of the U.S. and, and, and U.K. And, and other supporters in, in, in Afghanistan, it's really I think it's really important to remember February 15th, 2003. I mean, that was the day of anti-war, a coordinated anti-war protests around the world. And they were super large because I feel like, you know, there are commentators who are trying to make it a sort of common sense. Well, who knew that it would be yes. so hard for the U.S. And we knew yeah. like millions of us knew. And we were in the streets telling them not only that it was wrong, you know, that wasn't the it was that it was you are going to fail. You're just going to create disaster. I mean, that was exactly what everyone in the streets was saying 20 years ago. So anyway, I mean, I just, it, it frustrates me when, well, I don't know, frustrates. I think it's good to celebrate the intelligence of the anti-war movement at the beginning of this war and recognize that they were right. I don't know, it just seems like an important well, it is because, like the you know the anti-war movement in the UK, obviously Jeremy Corbyn was a, a fundamental part of that. You know, Leanne Wood in Wales was a yeah. big part of it here, and as you said, a million people marched, and we were looking at you, know, you contrast the anti-war movement with absolute cross-party support for bombing in Afghanistan, and then to a lesser, lesser extent Iraq, and all the people who authored that war, who committed war crimes, you know, like not just Blair but Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, and so on are still like fundamentally huge parts of the British public sphere. I'm sure it's the same in the US, you know, like they're, yeah, absolutely. they're, they're yeah. been well, like George Bush has been yeah, rehabilitated. Yeah, yeah, like the kind of kind exactly. of grandfather of uh... <laughs> Yeah, whereas uh whereas the people who stood against that war and as you said repeatedly said that this is a terrible idea are by liberals as well, you know, the liberals as much as the right are deemed absolute cranks, you know, we're deemed as uh, sort yeah. of weird, crusty old lefties. But yeah. Um, well, it's also, I mean, it's it's good to recognize, like you're saying, you know, the the class that Jeremy Corbyn's part of, but also the 20 year olds who are in the street. You know, it doesn't, it's not only the cranky old leftists, it's the young activists who were equally intelligent about what was going on and recognized the the truth of the matter then yeah i mean i wish i wish like you're you're suggesting that there could be a kind of historical accounting for this <laughs> hey. there never quite is you know there's not i'm not expecting it from in a sort of more public forum but at least among us we should we should uh, we should recognize and, and and celebrate this i mean let's take the police metaphor and you said everything coming into as an internal police intervention I mean, on the one hand, you would think obvious failures in Iraq and Afghanistan might sort of damper people's enthusiasm for sort of humanitarian intervention. As we spoke about with Frank Ledwidge in the last episode, as Kabul was falling, this it was the same liberal commentary that were coming up with exactly the same tropes about the need to intervene. And, you know, in Empire, you made this interesting thing about like, you know, every intervention is seen as exceptional. <laughs> 
and Spurn is exceptional, even though it happens all the time. Obviously, it was a catastrophic failure in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. But so do you think this the, the global police thing sort of still still holds as a log, as a logic or as a moral sort of justification? Or has that been undermined as well? I don't see anything that can replace it from the perspective of the ruling powers. You know, both the ruling economic powers and the and the political class. I do think that, you know, the publics of, you know, the UK and the US, you know, and other and other countries too have have certainly lost their taste for for military ventures. Yeah. But that said, you know, it's but then, you know, there's there's a great deal of talk now, especially in France, about creating European military force. France has its own military inventions here there. I think what it seems to me like is happening is that we're headed for a more disjointed phase of such things that, you know, it was taken for granted 20 years ago that the U.S. would lead, you know, the U.K. would join, others would join, but the the U.S. would lead. It seems now that that's not going to be the case, but it doesn't mean that there'll be any fewer of these actions. now, Now we'll have this mosaic of them Turkey and Libya, yeah. uh, Russia in, in in I don't know Syria, uh, France and Chad, and I see the, those all also as conceived as a, as a, you know not as foreign wars but as a sometimes commercial competitions. Um, mm. But anyway, I, I think it, what's interesting about the way you're you know asking it I, is I do see this future fracturing. You know, from my point of view, it could be just as horrifying and disastrous. I don't know if I'd rather be occupied by the French or the Americans. Exactly. Um, depends, depends what your fries are going to get cold, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, or the Turkish military yeah. forces or the Russian ones, I, I don't think. The, the moral argument of, is still is still there, whether it's carried out by the, the French or whether it's carried out by the Brits or whether yeah. it's carried out by the Americans. And what I thought was, again, one of, the, one of the fascinating bits about Empire is you discuss NGOs. You know, you discuss NGOs mm-hmm. sometimes as like, whether consciously or unconsciously, you're sort of preparing the ground for like soft imperialism preparing the ground for invasions mm. partly because they're reproducing and promoting the language of imperialism and this morality which is mm. under, underpins sort of empire you know that you say that they identify like the problem and then it's mm. like well who's going to solve this problem of human rights abuses in wherever that we've identified yeah. you know let's stand back do you still see that as a case do you think it was a harsh Mm-hmm. Uh, harsh on NGOs or should I stop um, giving money to MSF <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I it's very difficult to talk about NGOs as a whole you know because yeah, they're such a varied group of things and and you know one of the things we say that they're the mendicant order of empire you know that well and I would say you know more more often but like I said it's it's anytime I say something about NGOs I feel like I'm <laughs> being so partial you know but because yeah. of only some of them but you said prepare the ground for empire, I, I think it's more often, or the, what I'm thinking of currently, are the ones who try to repair the ground, you know, because, which is, I think, often a, a noble endeavor, perhaps a helpless, a hopeless one, or a never-ending one, you know, of trying to address those who are starving from drought, but yeah. of course, drought that's caused by X, Y, Z, you know, and and those, it's it's almost as if their, their mandate, because at least many NGOs have to think of their work as not political or even present themselves to donors as as not political. They enter into this 
enter, enter into this logic. I, I don't mean by that that it, a one should stop giving money to Sanson <laughs> Frontier or that or any other NGO or that or that we should stop doing such things. You know, it's it's one's put in this situation that that's a it's a necessary but insufficient yeah. way of dealing with things. I mean, think about it in terms of migrant crisis. I would certainly not say that any of the NGOs that are operating in the Mediterranean who yeah. were saving people who are no. down, drowning, I give them as much money as I can, I, I as much whatever. I mean, I think that they are super helpful, but I guess I would, if one would say there too, it's an interesting distinction within the, Medi within the Mediterranean um, rescue missions. Yeah. Like to, to a certain extent, they're humanitarian operations, just saving as many people as they can. But to a certain extent, they are necessarily or have to be political operations, you know, which demonstrate the consequences of European or, or Italian or other nations' policies. Uh, so it can't be, you know, if it's if it's only humanitarian, if it's only just saving the people who were who were drowning, and of course, always only saving tragically a fraction. The, the figures are staggering of, of of death in the Mediterranean. That's just not enough. I mean, it's not enough. And also, this is one thing also I realized after saying such things in Empire. So many people who work in NGOs think exactly the same way. Yeah. You know, it's it's sort of like doing such work and simultaneously being frustrated by the limits of it. So I don't know if that means it's a criticism or just or, or an affirmation. Would of, you say there's um, a comparison with, I guess, missionaries and like colonialism, in a sense, with NGOs that, you know, they thought, in a sense, they're like just say spreading the word of God, but inadvertently kind of, you know, maybe doing a bit more damage. Yeah, the thing, I mean, I don't think the comparison holds because, well, at least, you know, the, again, then, you know, like all the thinking about the, all these different NGOs. But let's just think <laughs> for a minute about the, you know, the 10 or 12 boats of NGOs in the Mediterranean saving migrants. They're not proselytizing in any way. They're not trying to change their minds. They're not even, you know, they're not trying to. Also, they're not trying to encourage migration. They're not trying to discourage migration. They're just saving people who are drowning at sea. Yeah, it's, know, a pra it's a pragmatic response, isn't it? It's a pragmatic response that doesn't, uh, you know what, I think it should have some political content, but it doesn't have, I mean, the missionaries had some political content, even if mm. they said they were only preaching the word of God, they they had a, a global vision that, that went along with that. And that, like you said, dovetailed with European imperialist ideology and endeavors there are a lot of ngos that don't i mean they dovetail with in the sense that the, the migrant rescue ships are you know they're doing a work that's been made necessary by this criminal migrant policies of of the us and the and and, and europe and so i don't know, i was just thinking the cynical thing to say is they're just cleaning up the mess that europe keeps keeps making or the us in the same way in the same way charities uh, mm. domestically uh, function i mean yeah. Uh, papering of the cracks, really, isn't it? Of, uh... Yeah, but that's, a, I mean, now we're saying something that I think is, you know, that's always been understood, and it doesn't mean the people yeah. doing charity work shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> no, it no. just means that we need to do a different work. <laughs> the agents of imperialism. Need, we need to put them out of business. We need to make it so that they're, so that doing that work is not necessary. Wales is absolutely dominated by what I would call the poverty industry, and the idea of a charity is not, you know, not being an inherent good or not being there would almost seem just totally nonsensical to people but that's a that's a that's a totally that's another episode again forgive me if i'm 
representing a caricature of empire but i'm sure you've been asked this before you know looking at afghanistan last week's episode was on you know helmand frank ledwidge was telling us you know the majority of helmandis can't read you know obviously no one's got the internet no one's got mobile phones is afghanistan and to less extent iraq you know are we not looking there at like there is an outside of empire and it's here in these these people who can't read or write who still live in a a rural way of life i mean admittedly obviously they they are globally interconnected because that's where the opium comes from but in other way in other ways you know it 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 does seem like there is the border of empire there you are up against something that is outside Mm -hmm. yeah the i mean there's some ways in which the inside outside metaphor you know the topographical metaphor does there's some ways in which it's very useful and there's some ways which you find yeah difficulties. But I think that what you said, I do think it's important to recognize how all are in some sense, you know, but maybe a limited sense within global capital. I remember when we were writing the book, it was a time when there was a lot of writing, good writing, good, uh, you know, scholarship, anthropologists and others about, especially about Africa, about disposable people. And that because, because there were there are, you know, there continue to be. And when you're talking about provinces in Afghanistan, the same is true outside of circuits of uh, commodity mm. consumption and commodity production. You know, they're not. And and hence the idea that they don't matter to capital and hence are disposable. And outside, I, I you know, I recognize the necropolitical nature of, you know, the, the position of such populations. But. I do think it's it's useful to think of them still within and under the command of global capital, even if they're not in the circuits of production and exchange. I mean, you, you gave an excellent example about the opium trade. You know that the you know that their here, here's another way of saying it that their poverty and illiteracy, et cetera, is is an effect of global capital. It's yeah. not as if that's some natural state where they're on the outside. You know. So in some senses, I think it's true to say, you know, that they're outside of the circuits of, of commodity production. Mm-hmm. I mean, to an extent, or, or, you know, we can think about that with the opium trade and such, but they, they obviously are excluded from many things. And that's important to do. But, but for us, it was more important to think about how all are, are dominated by capital in important ways and in different ways. So, you know, so it doesn't mean, you know, the outside thing, it, it doesn't mean that all of them could strike you know, the way an industrial worker could do and therefore bring capital to his knees, you know, that uh, that's, you know, the the classic way of thinking what's in the way the, way the proletariat's internal capital is, is has yeah. power over capital because of its internal nature, you know, either the strike in production or the refusal of consumption through boycott, you know, some ways have a power over capital. These such populations are not inside in that way. You know, that's what the disposability discourse is partly about. Yeah, but I think recognizing the the global reach of capital and the and the um, and the needs also of such populations to confront capital. That's yeah. Here's a, I mean here's a, also um, a confrontation that or what we call a difference that was present in our mind back then. Thinking about the inside outside is in Rosa Luxemburg's accumulation of capital. The inside outside is super important for her in that book and. She's thinking about the expansion, you know, the, the capital needs to expand, you know, through this expanded reproduction. It always needs new territories to get raw materials, new territories for markets. It, I mean, capital always relies on its outside, these non-capitalist territories. That's Luxembourg's thinking in the early 20th century. And I guess what we're what we're thinking is that even Helmand Province is not an, 
a non-capitalist territory the way she was thinking about it. You know, that yep. it's that it's really internal to, you know, okay, I'm now, now I'm repeating myself, but I guess I'm making partly a distinction between internal to capital's command and maybe not internal to all its circuits of production and outside socially or culturally perhaps perhaps yeah that, i mean i i think maybe we should just use the inside outside metaphor in some ways or or think of it as partial <laughs> rather than as absolutely exclusive i mean I, I i do think and like i'm still coming back to the way you were originally posing it there there are ways in which illegal production and circulation does pass through there yeah and so one might have to have a, a kind of expanded notion of of what the circuits of capital look like in the way that opium production and circulation is really part of the capitalist world system. It's that requires a little bit more. While we're on production, you know, obviously in empire, there's a lot of focus on globalization, communication, like immaterial labor, I guess, like the transition to the service economy and like the developed West and so on, uh, not the knowledge economy. In you know 2021 now, how do you sort of view this split? Because obviously we were th- thinking earlier, you know, that, that there is obviously a knowledge economy. We still the core still needs resources. It still needs water. It still needs like lithium. You know, the U.S. has been backing right. coups in like Bolivia for this reason. And as you said, almost like not the like the grey economy on a global scale, like the Brazilian destruction of the Amazon, palm oil, and all these various sort of uh, commodities that the the core as Wallace right. or whatever would call it need so you could argue looking at the world system at the moment that there is almost still a split where like you know the, the there is like a, a proletariat in the global south that is in making in crowning the sweatshops or working in like lithium mines or or and so on in africa and then there's like the knowledge economy in you know like the europe and america do you still do, do you see it as being a split or do you see it as being uh, absolutely of course <laughs> yes there's definitely a, a split and one should think of it as in terms of shifting global divisions of labor and power and that the global divisions of labor and power are not fixed so early 20th century one of the classic ways or and 19th century too of course one of the classic ways of thinking about it was that there was <laughs> cotton production in india and the southern united states and other places and britain was the the workhouse that were the cotton comes there made it in textiles, then sold back. You know, that that's, that was a, 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 and at that moment, the industrial proletariat was at the pinnacle of global power. You know, you could think about the looms and, and fa- textiles in, in Britain in the, in, the, in the 19th century, or you could think about automobiles in Detroit and Tur- Turin and, and in Britain in, in the early 20th century. But it was then the industrial proletariat that had the, had the greatest power. That's not true today. Like there are just as many industrial workers today in the world, but they're on a different side of the divide of, of the division of power. Our talk about, I mean, I think you're, you presented that exactly right. It's, we're not claiming at all that quantitatively thought of globally, there are fewer industrial workers. It's just they've shifted location and the shift in location corresponds to a shift in power. I guess the, the, the more difficult point that we're trying to make, and you know, maybe one that we're not and we haven't maybe been posing it always exactly right, is that production that, like what we were saying 20 years ago, we called it immaterial production, which is, a, I think, an awkward term. But but this production, this non-industrial production of immaterial or partly immaterial goods, not knowledge production is part of it, but there's a lot of other service aspects, care, a lot of you know gendered and race, et cetera, that this is equally the production of capital. Like that, that we don't, 
what, 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 and one thing I think we're struggling against, and this continues in, in my view, you know, especially among Marxist comrades, but others too, is, you know, okay, here's the caricature of it, but then we'd have to work backwards. The caricature of it is capitalist production is only a production of material goods and commodities. It, capitalist production is only industrial production. And all the rest of this, it's not really the production of capital. In fact, the term service itself is an awkward term because it assumes that it's subordinate to and only serves what is primarily production, which is which is the industrial production. Yeah, let me try. This is something I've been thinking about lately and, and trying to figure out the right way of saying it. So I, I might not be fully articulate about it yet, but I was thinking about the, the, the current important discourse about bullshit jobs. Think about David Graeber using yeah. that term, but there's a, it's a much larger discourse about and and it's totally right in the sense that you know the kind of jobs we're talking about working at 7-Eleven or you know all these things. Of course, I mean work sucks. I'm totally you know like I I'm there and the refusal to work is an extremely important baseline position. But there are two things about it. The easy one to say is the work in the factory is also a bullshit job. Like that's and and workers hated the work in the factory. Let's not make it some nostalgia for oh the good old days when. <laughs> When workers could go to the factory and be exploited there, you know, so that is so a but the harder one is to say is working in a in a care facility for the elderly or working in a in a 7-Eleven or, or any of these things that might go under the rubric of service while being bullshit jobs, they are also productive of capital and essential to capital. I don't think we should forget that the capital is not only and even not it's I don't think it's even the center, it's, it's center of gravity, the production of industrial goods. So anyway, that's what we're trying to get at with this discourse about immaterial production or biopolitical production or social production. We've gone through a number of phases of trying to, to work through this is to understand the capitalist economy as not only it's, it's so in, in some ways, you know, this comes back to the early part of our conversation when we started, which is that Tony and I consider ourselves like uh, completely orthodox Marxists, but we're orthodox Marxists historicizing, you know, so that what's true in 1850 is not true in 1916, and that's not true today. That we have to think what the ways that capital changes, the ways the historical the order changes. I'd say the same thing about Lenin's notion of the party, but that's probably another discussion. Consider us Orthodox Leninists in our conception of the party, but that we did I'll leave that. We did an episode on uh, Silvia Federici and like reproductive labor, which yeah. I think was a, is yeah. a, is a good adjunct. So as you said, this idea of immaterial production and and labor. Absolutely. So if we look at the world system, then. I guess, you know, geopolitics, there's a, an analysis of what's going on at the moment, which I am actually, I'm quite sympathetic to. It looks like in some ways that we're in a situation that's almost like close to what it was like before the First World War, you know, in like the great, we are in a globalized, a massively globalized interconnected system, but we were then. The great powers, you know, the US has obviously declined. China is rising. The US is, is obviously pivoting to look to China, there's been that recent escalation with like the US, UK and Australia, like in the nuclear submarines. There's obviously the ongoing proxy war against Iran, which has like been just bubbling over for what 50 years, something like 50 years, something like that. You know, Russia and Turkey are sort of carving out Syria, Libya, like between them. In some ways, it for me it looks like there is a, a, a clash. So I'm not saying it's coming, it's coming, but it's not something that is out of the realms of possibility. So would that so would that uh, sort of clash with the thesis uh, of empire? So I guess what I'm asking is, like, how would you look at the 
the current global formation? Do you see it as like one that is relatively stable with the de- with the decline of the US in light of, of sort of the fall of Afghanistan? Or I mean, I, th- I think you're exactly right about thinking about these highly. I mean, not not unlikely. You know that there there yeah, are yeah. There, there are a great deal of possibilities of 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 all the kinds of conflicts that you're that you're talking about, and it, it certainly could it certainly could head in that direction. I mean, the one of the hypotheses of empire for us, like I was saying earlier, is that there will work out. You know that, that we're in the process of the formation of a governance structure that's adequate to global capital. You know, but, but it doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to happen. Mm. You know, but it, you know, it's not like, especially in short term. You know, if one thinks in short term horizons, that that everything always works in the interest of capital. That's not true. But I guess it was a it was a it's a standpoint of hypothesis. Mm. You know, for us, like what thinking about what is in the interests of global capital. I mean, it, it, this has always been our my my and Tony's um, perspective about it is that what we need to figure is what is the enemy that will face in the future yeah. you know like or, or today but also what's the coming enemy so it's not like we're figuring you know this working out of empire as some sort of like i don't know is a good thing or a, but but it does seem important to recognize the form of the enemy in order to contest it so like you're suggesting it might be especially in the long term it, it, uh in the short term it, it, there could be these clashes that don't fit into the interests of global capital and hence would conflict with or defer is a way of thinking about it. The formation of empire, but you know, this this discussion completely dovetails with thinking about the future of capital and its crises. Yeah. So here's another assumption that we're making. You know, that we're acting on, recognizing it's purely an axiom. You know, it's not true. It's just our thinking is that capital will not collapse on its own. Capital will not. There will not be catastrophe in which it its internal contradictions come tumbling down. It will be overthrown by an a subjective crisis, not an objective crisis, which means the organization of an alternative, et cetera. That might not be true, but we're sort of, we're acting on that on that assumption. So what you're describing seems to me, especially if it were not just a short-term deviation, yes. would be a kind of catastrophic internal conflict of capital in which in which all these these various national powers and other interests devour each other. Because I, I don't see that in the interest of global capital, uh, maybe in my understanding of it. It's totally plausible, the scenario you lay out, though. I, yes. I, I have no... But when when discussing it, we have to think about qui bono or whatever, like who who, who benefits and, and who, whose interest is. Yeah. And that's why it's important to return to, like, as you saw in Empire and other works, like this discussion of sort of the interrelationship between national capital, but also, like, the global ruling class yeah. what are the relationships between these different class fractions and so on because exactly. you know, obviously in your updates but that's actually one of the best segues you've done for a while but in your <laughs> in your update to empire and new left review you know obviously one of the the challenges to your argument is you're saying that you know to take a very basic view is that you're saying on the one hand the world is globalized etc and then people are now saying well look at trump the rise, you know, Brexit, the rise of sort of protectionist and nationalism, yeah. and almost like the return to sovereignty of the nation states across the world. But as you've sort of said there, Michael, I don't think it's an either or. Like I don't, because I think that the focus on oh globalization is over or whatever misses the the interrelationships as you said between different globe the, the global ruling class, like the the nas- national capital's relationship with international capital, small capital's relation to large capital and the mutual interest between 
sort of like the local and national elites and, and global elites. I think that's kind of lost when people are talking about like protectionism. Right. And and it's not. Uh, yeah, I do think it's, I do think it's somewhat of a of a red herring to focus on Trump and, and yeah. politicians like him and their claims of 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 their own national sovereignty because first of all they they could be trump i i I don't know how much the trump phenomenon will last in the u.s afterwards but even trump and other others who celebrate whatever italy first or you know that sort of thing they aren't as protectionist as they say i mean they're they're conditioned by as you say you know think about in terms of a global ruling class which they are beholden to you know that that's not yeah so i i i do think it's a it's something that in the in the last few years has gotten a has sort of drawn attention away from the global interrelations. We, we Tony and I were also thinking in that in that essay when when we were reflecting on you know mm. what the conditions of also the conditions of writing 20 years ago, you know which was that I think these globalization movements you know that from the Zapatistas through Seattle against the WTO and and Genova and G8 etc. Like one of the fantastic thing about the movements then was their analytical and theoretical ability. I mean, that they were able to focus attention on and and these you know global relations that are embedded in our daily lives and the relations among them. I mean, the way that they were exploring, I would say, with these you know summit meetings, which one could criticize in all kinds of ways, they were exploring why the free trade of the Americas agreement and why the WTO and why the G8 and why all of these different institutions are in fact ruling powers. I mean, it's a, yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that then this is something that just that that struck us in reflecting back is that we are missing today a vocabulary and a, and a perspective to recognize these globalized structures that I think 20 years ago we had a better, I mean, that the movements had a better handle on. Rather than thinking, I mean, at least in our view, it's not like the world has become less global, even though saying that it's a little bit like that inside-outside discourse earlier. You know, it's what is global, what is globalization-centric, and always can be a little. But anyway, I, I think that these, the, the, the global nature of, of the ruling powers of capital and its, and its various instances hasn't declined. It's just that we've become less able to recognize that. How how do you view the I guess this the status of global governance as in you know super, these supranational institutions like well the UN I guess the EU in particular well not not just in light of what's happened in Afghanistan but but you know 20 years on from the publication of Empire you know yeah they go through phases I mean it doesn't and 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 also the different ones have or the UN has always been weak I mean one it was always a uh, what do you call it a a mirage a, a convenient name. To yeah. think of the UN as, uh, and and I remember a, a, a one of I think it was when Trump first went to the UN and spoke in the UN and denouncing globalists. Thing much more interesting to think about the WTO as a as a force of that, and and yeah. you know the World Bank and the IMF. I'm I wouldn't say that their influence has shifted as much. It, so actually, as we're saying this, it could be that the that the strictly political institutions that we recognize as the fundaments of a global order, you know, here, the UN, the EU, stuff like that, that their power has declined or they fractured or something like that, whereas the economic ones are perfectly fine. And then but then to think about it in a different way, and this is what you've come back to a number of times, you could reference David Harvey as much as some of the others. I mean, that if one thinks about it from the construction of a global capitalist class, 
you know, I was thinking with David Harvey with with the way that his notion of neoliberalism has always been as class comfort from the from the perspective of capital in order to create yeah. or recreate and, and and give sustenance to a capitalist class. Mm -hmm. Think about it that way. If that's what you mean, if that's what we mean by it, they're doing fine. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> um, in the same way that Tony and I were posing these three levels of this mixed constitution, we also thought the institutional structure has to be thought of in these different you know, autonomous but supporting elements. I mean, these political institutions, the economic institutions, the formation of, of a capitalist class, you know, itself, which is not defined by either of those, that they, they conflict with each other some, they're relatively autonomous, but there's a kind of collaboration or consistency that's created among them. And that's partly what one thinks of, you know. It's certainly not like the UN dictates what the IMF and World Bank do. Yeah. And it's not like the it's not like the 10 richest people in the world also strictly dictate things. But nonetheless, there's because this is at least maybe we treat this as an hypothesis there. There forms a kind of consistency among their interests. Exactly what you said. I, you know, I, I couldn't really articulate it. But for me, this the line when people talk about populism and stuff, I think that is yeah. it is often a, a red herring and it obscures, as you said, the real power which transcends and traverse it sort of like local and national borders um now i don't know if you wanted to speak about just briefly about biopower purely because what i thought might be interesting is that you know biopower was relatively important to to empire i thought and biopolitics and foucault i thought it was just a fascinating discussion because it wasn't something i'd mm -hmm. encountered at all to be honest and as well as sort of the focus on communicative technologies as kind of like an adjunct to biopolitics obviously that was 20 years ago i don't know if there were smartphones back then or like an instagram and things like that but you do talk about tech communication technology technologies being key to biopolitics and like you said the monetization of everyday life and, and our interactions and so on have you got any thoughts on biopolitics like today specifically with like the pr huge proliferation of of communication technologies and, and how it's just to totally dominate our lives in a way that probably didn't even 20 years yeah you're right that that's i mean it's it's also a it's also a complicated many faceted yeah. discussion what one has to do about the question of biopower one of the things that tony and i were trying to do in empire was so we we take the discourse you know we take the term from michel foucault who means something somewhat different by it and one of the things we wanted to insert is the notion of production and labor within mm. this context you know so <clears throat> I, maybe I should start with, you know, so Foucault was interested in how populations are controlled and and how it's not how, how power is exerted, not just by repressing people, but actually producing forms of life, also ways of thinking. And so in that way, it, it fits with certain notions of even if he didn't like the term ideology, it fits with a certain kind of creation of, of ways of thinking, ways of acting. Okay. So we wanted to think, you know, that's also the the realm of production and the realm of the realm of labor, and that one of the things that's being produced are forms of life. And so, in some ways, in the realm of immaterial production, you know, thinking of knowledge production, but then even more thinking about care, reproductive labor. You know, we talked about affective labor in that in that book as a way of thinking about that. Um, this is also required for the production of capital. You know, it's not it's not just an adjunct to the real, like I was saying a few minutes ago, the real pressure of capital. This is, and so that, you know, part of what the way we're exploited is by producing and having to produce forms of life. 
And so in some ways, you know, Foucault wasn't really interested in he was thinking of this as um, the way that power is exerted. He wasn't interested in the way that we, through our labor, are enlisted in that, that production of forms of life, which is as important as the production of, of material commodities. OK, I'm now back to that other thing. So that was the one way we were one way we were shifting the discourse. We also this also allowed us to make another shift. And it could be that for listeners, my going through how we relate to Foucault isn't the most interesting part. But <laughs> but the other thing we wanted we wanted to shift it is. is this discourse on biopower biopower was strictly a, a matter of control the mm. way we read it. And it's partly by recognizing labor and production in this, it could be also a two-sided thing. You know, it's not so there's also a a biopolitical struggle that can, on that same terrain, contest those forms of control. I mean, once you think about, I mean, this is this is you know key to a Marxist tradition. Really, is that labor is not only, not only the side of our oppression; it's also the side of our power. And that's what it means to be exploited. To be exploited means that you are are powerful. And so that, that's so we we sort of wanted to think of this problematic of biopower as being two-sided, you know, both a context of of, uh, of domination, but also a site of potential struggles, yeah. struggles for liberation. So that, then we think about the, you know, to come back now to things like, if you think about affective labor or, you know, reproductive work, care work, you know, which is, one has to think about the ways in which it's primarily gendered, you know, as, as um, traditional women's work, et cetera. It's, so it is, it is a site of continuing hierarchy and uh, subordination, but it's also the site of, of potential struggles, you know, for liberation against anti-capitalist struggles, et cetera. So we wanted to think of biopower, and that is, that's just what I'm coming back to, in terms of that, in terms of that context of simultaneously the site of domination and subordination and the site of struggle the struggle for liberation. That's the way we we sometimes make the the distinction between biopower as the top down one, yeah, and biopolitical struggles as the bottom up. It's it, it's very tenuous drawing that distinction from things that Foucault actually said, <laughs> but but it's a, it it seemed like a, a convenient thing for us. You know, one of the things that I'm I'm sure I'm not I couldn't adequately answer is part of the current discussions about the pandemic is the ways in which the pandemic has been on an occasion for the intensification of biopower, state mandates, yeah. uh, state restrictions, yeah. uh, increased surveillance. These are all classic ways that Foucault was thinking about. Of you know uh, of an intensification of all the things he was he was posing and that all makes sense to me and I I'm not one who thinks that the pandemic was a hoax and just a way of um, the occasion for it but nonetheless I, oh, I we are. it seems pardon <laughs> I say jokingly say we are like it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> COVID um, denial podcast it does, seem, it does seem obvious to me that it's at least uh, regardless of its origins, et cetera, at least been an occasion for, you know, even states doing things that I think they have to do. You know, I'm, yeah. a, I, I'm, for instance, I'm not opposed to vaccine mandates or such things. But the fact that I think that the state should be doing it doesn't mean that it doesn't increase. Yeah, exactly. Means of And, and these are things that really won't go away. No one really thought about that. Like we were a bunch of us when we were active in during the pandemic, we're, we're trying to draw attention to the fact that, you know, you don't want to you don't want to come out of this 
pandemic with like massively increased police powers with like harder borders uh, all under the pretense yeah. you know increased state power and state surveillance under the pretense of sort of you know solving covid but there was a huge yeah. amount of people on the left well i'd say the liberal left who were sort of like yeah this is awesome like you know give them all all the powers we want <laughs> lock down the airport uh stop people coming in yeah. and he just started to think like okay well i just think strategically about how this is gonna and well it's erupting in australia at the moment uh we're still under still under lockdown um don't don't look yeah. like they're ever gonna ever gonna come out, come out right we're at pretty hard borders anyway it's just a natural uh, like progression isn't it michael uh you talk about a lot about resistance and you know through the concept of the multitude and more recently you talk about the intersection of the multitude and class in the new left review article what do you think the the forms of resistance to empire are going to be and where do you think they're going to happen should we join the taliban (laughs) (laughs) i think when we think about uh resistance today a first principle i guess is to think about the plurality of it Mm. you know and that, that they they don't have to be we don't have to understand them immediately as connected all together I mean, I, I do think we, we, I mean, we are seeing, and of course, the end of the pandemic will, will allow us to see more clearly the way labor struggles, you know, especially in the dominant countries are central. I mean, now it's sometimes around like riders and other gig workers and um, in Amazon warehouses. And, you know, so it might be different sites than we've had before, but the, they're in some ways, I would think of those as thinking about labor resistances in, in, in some ways clear within the tradition. But I think equally important are migrant struggles, for yeah. instance, even though they're not in the, we, we don't see them as, you know, like we're not going to say, oh, that's the same thing as labor struggles are on the same. Yeah, yeah. The similar, I, I would pose also, you know, this is equally true in the UK and the US that uh, struggles against white supremacy, you know, not only of struggles against anti-blackness, but also other racial subordinations. I think that's that's equally important. And, and I guess I would post now, now, now I'm coming closer to the where you were thinking that I think struggles against against gender hierarchies and uh, that, that have come up in the pandemic, too, because in some yeah. ways the pandemic has been a great uh, shining light on all kinds of hierarchies that already existed and, and in some ways exacerbating them but bringing them to light. So anyway, I, I guess I was thinking the first thing, and this might be a way of you know, starting to think multitude, is don't assume there's one logic. You know, don't assume that, there's, that, that it's all one thing mm. and that we can understand those all together. Rather, start from the struggles themselves. You know, there are these struggles that are against um, you know, they're, they're against capital, but not only against capital. That's the other thing we shouldn't, I think, fetishize you know recognize that struggles against white supremacy aren't you know they they are against capital because capital functions as part of in relation to hand in hand with white supremacy but they're also not just against that anyway start from the struggles and recognize their multiplicity and then from there construct like rather than starting with a unified logic start with the multiplicity of struggles and what people are doing and then it's our it's our organizational challenge to to weave them together recognizing their relative autonomy you know one of the now i'm just going to go back to a commonplace sort of thing you know like one of the problems of communist and progressive organizing up at least until the end of the 1960s was an assumption that the proletariat especially the industrial proletariat was the center of organization so there you know of course there was a woman problem as they called it then there was a racial problem etc but they all were under the umbrella of a coherent struggle that was coherent because the industrial worker, usually male and white, was the leader of it. I think 
and I'm only posing that almost as a cliche, but nonetheless, a cliche that had a certain effectiveness mm -hmm. up to a time. I mean, I think it's important, like I say, that we recognize this multiplicity. And so you could, that's one way of saying the term multi multitude. I mean, think, recognizing the multiplicity of struggles for liberation. And, and I don't mean this as just posing it as chaos. That's what I say. That's the organizational project that, that comes from that is um, is one that requires that requires work, you know, that that that's where the that's where it comes. I mean, that does mean, though, that does mean, though, and this is maybe a, now I'm saying something that I, I assume seems obvious to everyone. It does mean, though, a, a kind of perpetual and important educational project for all of us, you know, like all of us who involved and have been involved and in, and in understand the mode of class struggle in, in, in say, an industrial environment or something. It's it, they have they have to also learn about these other axes of, repre of repression that are not that are not their own and understand even that. So you could that if I was posing it that way, it sounds like just a, a voluntarist, almost charity kind of thing like, oh, I understand you guys are struggling too. I'll learn about your struggle. No, you have to also understand that their struggle also is integrally tied to yours. You know, it's not like the struggle against white supremacy is somehow external to the anti-capitalism. It's and so that I mean, this is one of the things that I found in, even during the pandemic great about the Black Lives Matter struggle in the US, you know, especially in the George Floyd period of it, which was that at every demonstration, it was, you know, a denunciation of white supremacy. Yeah. But it was also against homophobia and affirming black trans lives and yeah. recognizing heteropatriarchy as the, you know, is, I mean, it, here's the heartening part of it, because when I put it like this, it sounds like, oh, my God, how can we do all that? You know, like, I, I'm barely enough figuring out, like, the struggle I'm involved with, how can we do the others? My feeling is that the generation of 20 year olds today, that this is the common sense for them and that they and that there is an education already in place for that. And so it's not like, you know, I feel like I, I so people, people of my generation, I don't know if what you what you feel about with, you know, with comrades and yours, but it could seem like a huge burden to try to understand. And whereas I, I, I feel like for younger people, they've they've grown up in this environment that is already yeah it's I, I i totally understand what you mean for me the challenge is actually trying to insert class now into the because because it gets it gets excluded i think you're yeah. right you're right and there's some historical reasons yeah of course why but that's not um a good reason yeah i i agree i totally agree with you that yeah but it's not that, a reason you know, to ignore everything else yeah i mean it's not uh, it, it's not an either or thing yeah, know, that, yeah. That, um, and it's and it's such a fundamental point which just gets overlooked and then the idea of just permanently learning about but it's, it's talking to each other is key isn't it being able to have like you know uh, to learn about the different sort of uh, yeah. axes of, of sort of oppression and struggle and being able to have respectful conversations and you know that that happens in movement cultures you know mm -hmm. that's what I, I and this isn't just a thing where you do it like i certainly don't mean this is an academic thing that you do in universities although they can do that too I think of it as in organizing context. I mean, that's when yeah. I think one learns together yeah. about these things. That's actually a really optimistic and nice way to, to finish off, I think. Uncharacteristically uh, for us, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally uncharacteristic. Um, well, actually, I was going to ask, normally we ask people if they've got any shout outs or any beefs, uh, anyone they want to start a, a conflict with. Uh, with. Yeah, start the fight with. We are going to ask you that. We're also going to ask you some of our new questions that we've been asking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> what is your favorite fruit? Banana. Banana, solid. And what is your favorite film? Oh. Top five. Yeah. Zabruta film? That's hard. 
Okay. Uh, what if if you have a takeaway or a takeout in the US, like what do you what do you have and what do you order? Oh, I don't do that much. Home cooking. Um, yeah. It's got um, a massive pizza oven of you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Still thinking about his films. Yeah. I was thinking about the films. I don't know what. We just dropped it. We just dropped it on you. Um, it could Bernard. be Thelma and Louise. I don't know. That would be a nice. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's, a, that's a good. That's a very good film. The banana is a. a solid yeah, I've been getting bananas lately. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a boring one. I don't know what. <laughs> no, it, yeah. Um, honestly. We're really grateful for you coming on. Yeah, you've it's a pleasure. It's been fun. You've obviously written so much, and uh, like I guess a rock star in the world of academia. So we're very grateful. You've been you've been so nice and give you, give us your time. Is there anything you're working on at the moment you want us to to plug, or we'll obviously plug plug Empire and ah, Commonwealth. Well, and I wonder. Multi- I wonder if this would be. I mean, I I wonder if it would be. Um, yeah, let me tell you what I'm working on. You don't have to plug it. I'm just <laughs> I wanted to see your reaction to it. You know, is the thing. Yeah. And it's a little bit different because, you know, I'm writing, this is the first book that I'm writing without Tony in about 35 years. You know, oh, so really? I've been, I've yeah. written with Tony a lot and I, I know it's been the focus thing. Anyway, this is a book about half done and called the subversive seventies. And mm. it's an argument about the progressive and revolutionary movements of the, of the 1970s. In the frame in some ways arguing that they're more interesting than the sixties uh, in part because the sixties, while super important is really the end of a previous era and that the 70s yeah. is the beginning of our own. In some ways, you can recognize the seeds of our contemporary movements in the 70s, but in some ways, I would say that the 70s liberation struggles were advanced from our own. And so and so then the, the different parts of the book try to go and recognize what the aspects of, you know, the, the movements in the 70s in different countries, you know, the, Yes, I've certainly done things in the U.S. and the U.K. and France and Italy, but also the the Portuguese colonies in in Africa, which were liberal, you know, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. I just wrote something about uh, a struggle in South Korea in the 70s. You know, I'm sort of trying to do it as, well, obviously Chile and Argentina, Portugal, the revolution. Anyway, so I'm sort of going around and trying to argue that the qualities and aspects of the struggles of the 70s are the are important for us today. Maybe that's just a way of saying it. I don't no, know. it sounds fascinating. Good soundtrack as well. Yeah. 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 I know. Well, See, that's the thing that I don't, I don't, I wish I were able, but I can't do <laughs> the music or the fashions. Every but time you open it, about... it just plays Fortunate Son, like your book. <laughs> <laughs> I... No, that's not. Also, it's not about, I mean, I think most of what we have written about the 70s recently are about the, forms of repression, you know, like yeah. ne- birth of neoliberalism, say. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing, when one thinks about the movements, unfortunately, and this is, a, I, I'm making a big effort to try to treat them, but hold them as separate, is what gets all the attention are the clandestine armed struggle. You know, even though they're a small portion, yeah. it's, the, the spectacle draws yeah. all the attention. We don't see what yeah, the movements are doing underneath. And No, it sounds fascinating. That's Funny okay. enough, um, lately I've been watching like a lot of films from the 70s and there is that like, ah, okay. undertone of conspiracy in a sense. Because as you say, like, you know, the differences between um, the 60s and the 70s, I, like yeah. my maybe um, read, uh, was it like 60s just seems like very optimistic in a sense. And then the 70s Absolutely. is kind of like an undercurrent of like, you know, it's deceit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, coming up up against state apparatus in a sense and how yeah. how they um they function but uh so i've never have you seen the parallax view 
Yes. I yeah. remember the essay that Fred uh, Jameson wrote about it. I don't know if you've seen this. Oh, no, no, it, I didn't know. I think you would like it. It's um, because it's just what you were talking about in a way. It's uh, let's see. It's the first essay in a book called Signatures of the Visible. And it's anyway, the theory. I can't remember the title, but the theory in it more or less was that conspiracy theories, he says, are the poor man's totality, like that global capital has become unknowable and that conspiracy theories aren't wrong. I mean, they aren't right either, but they're they're yeah. a way of trying to approximate what we can't understand. Yeah, they create like a kind of certain narrative about um, yeah, things, exactly. you know, like yeah, a, def- a defined. Yeah, I, I've also heard that with conspiracies as well. It's like creates a safety net for the people who believe in them. Like, you know, things yeah. I met, like, you know, with 9-11. Oh, you know, that was government plan because, you know, it's horrible to think that just some people can hijack a plane and smash it into a tower. You know, yeah. there's that, you know. And the um, pandemic too. There are a lot of, mm, I mean, yeah, conspiracies yeah, yeah, about yeah. that. I, I think, I think it's uh, the conspiracy theory is something that people should. I think Tom Mills is actually writing. Um, he's a great sociologist in Birmingham. He's he's writing something about conspiracy theory at the moment, like the the rise of conspiracy theory. So maybe he'll engage with the Jameson article, but we'll be reading that as well. Right, Michael. Right. We're we're so glad. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks so much. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah sorry. Pleasure. The question of human nature has long been a thing of political philosophy. In fact, I'm sure everyone had some stupid evening in college smoking way too much and talking where you end up in a discussion where like you're, you decide you disagree with your friend because she thinks that human nature is evil. You think human nature is good and you can't get any further. I mean, this is I think that's th- that kind of stupidity, I think, has affected a lot of the history of political philosophy. And I think the relevant fact for politics running aground <laughs> shipwrecked the relevant fact for politics is really that human nature is changeable human nature isn't good or evil human nature is uh, constituted it's constituted by how we act how we the history human nature is in fact the history of habits and practices that are the result of of past struggles, of past hierarchies, of past victories and defeats. And so this is, I think, actually the key to rethinking revolution is to recognize that revolution is not just about a transformation for democracy. It's really, revolution is really requires a transformation of human nature so that people are capable of democracy.